Hello out there. Hello out there, Bible fans. Hannah, what feast is it today? Feast is the feast of Jonah, right? The prophet Jonah. Hannah's asked me to teach you all a Troparian for Jonah. We're going to do it next year. Right, Hannah? You all ready? I expect some help on this. I'm teaching you a neutral party on Jonah. Now Jonah, he lived in a whale. Now Jonah, he lived in a whale. He made his home in a fish's abdomen. No Jonah, he lived in a whale. I was going to have Hannah sing it, but she's she's stuffing stuff in her mouth, so she says she will. <laughs> if we did that for the Troparian next year on the Feast of Jonah, you would have, for the following Feast of Jonah, you would have a new priest. <laughs> Any questions about the material of last time? Okay. We're still on the introduction to the book of Revelation. Yeah. We're still on the introduction. This is, I believe, our fourth week on that introduction. We've talked about um, the biblical meaning of prophecy, and we've talked about the liturgical context. Of the uh, of the book of Revelation, I want to continue on that latter theme. Now we pictured last week. We pictured we pictured Saint John on the Isle of Patmos on the Lord's Day. Right, he's facing the east. He's thinking of the seven churches that are there in a semicircle. And he sees them as the seven branch candlesticks. He sees something more. If this is Sunday morning, what's happening in the east? Sunrise. Sunrises in the east. So if the church is orientated and ours isn't, our church, our church faces south uh, if the church is facing east as churches are supposed to traditionally the last part of the before the great doxology the last part of uh, of matins is the ninth ode okay. now for quite some time we've been using a shortened ninth ode. The ninth ode should be a combination of the Magnificat and the Benedictus. We haven't in the in the East we haven't used the Benedictus in centuries. It is the only part that's interesting that in the West they dropped the Magnificat and put it to Vespers, where the East has the Noctimittis. In the 
in the uh, and they kept, kept the, the song of Mary in the morning, but we dropped the song of Zachary. Matins are supposed to be timed so that when you come to the ode of Zachary, the sun is rising in the window behind the altar. How does how does the song of Zachary end? To give to no 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 that's a song to Mitis. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the Orient from on high hath visited us, to give light to them and sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet in the way of peace. That's the way Matins is supposed to, and then right after that, glory be to God on high. Our, the, uh, we still have the, we still have the uh, um, great doxology pretty close pretty close to the ninth ode but it's been divided because so much of the liturgy came from monks and they kept throwing things in um, they, they, you, you, you can always tell what a monk has had his hands on a liturgy because it's all kinds of extra stuff thrown in the early Christians wouldn't have thought about okay. um, in the uh, in the west when they dropped when they dropped uh, matins and the West is in a Western parish. You haven't you haven't had matins at a Western parish in a hundred years, at least hundred years. What they did was shift the great doxology to the beginning of the Eucharist. Um, and so, if you if you attend a Roman Catholic or Episcopal Mass, or even even a even a Lutheran Eucharist, uh, very early one of the earliest things you have in the Eucharist is. Glory be to God on high. And, you know, uh, uh, the Anglicans went further. I don't remember. <clears throat> the Anglicans, I'm talking about the Anglican Reform, and you would not remember that. <laughs> I would. <laughs> the Anglican Reform, they they saw they, they shifted the great doxology to after Holy Communion. And that became a, a, a Thanksgiving hymn for after Holy Communion. That's the way it is in the 1928 prayer book. Um, in the in the newer prayer books, you remember that, Hal. In the newer prayer books, it shifted to the beginning of the Eucharist after the Kyrie eleison. Yeah. And then I think you just said, you know, I just thought it was Yeah, I'm not surprised the Episcopalians have done with it. Yeah, if you want Uh, but if, if I want to I want to mention to you the liturgical structure of the end of Matins. The liturgical structure of the end of Matins. Uh, the way Cashin describes the the liturgy done as it, as it done in Jerusalem, in the monastery of Saint Saba, back in, in Cashin's time, the early fifth century, or late fourth, early fifth century. The uh, you skipped first, third, six hours on Sunday. They were just they were taken out, but the Eucharist did in their place, so it came so it came right after Matins, okay. uh, which is still how we do it here. I think there's one of the very few ways in which we copy the monastery of Saint Saba in the Holy Land. Okay. All right, John is gazing eastward, okay. sees the rising of the sun, 
He also sees one like a son of man, adorned in those vestments prescribed for Aaron and his sons. What is this? What does this son of man look like? Clothed in a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. That's that's in Revelation one, and that's the way the high priest described in Exodus twenty-eight and Exodus thirty-nine. The sacrificed and risen Christ stands in the midst of the lampstands. I am he who lives, who was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. This is what John sees. So John is about to witness the inner secrets of what is taking place on that Sunday morning among the seven churches gathered in worship. Moreover, John is told to inscribe what he sees in order that what he writes may be read to those churches. Write the things that you have seen and the things which are and the things that will take place after this prophecy. Now, when John writes, John is not thinking about a distant audience many centuries later. He is told, rather, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches that are in Asia. It's a message for them. In other words, it serves the same purpose as St. Paul's epistle to specific churches. When the book reaches these churches, it will be read aloud in their assemblies. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. That's how it begins. The word to reach, pardon me, the word to reach, the word to read here is anagenoskin. Anagenoskin. More properly, anagenoskin means to read out loud. Anagenoskin. Read out loud. It's the verb that Luke employs to describe Jesus reading the scriptures in the synagogue at Nazareth. He gets up and reads that out loud, anagenoskin again. It's the same word used by the Apostle Paul when he speaks of Moses being read in their synagogues every Sabbath in Acts 15.11. Moses is read in their synagogue every, every Sabbath, same word used. Or again, still speaking of the services of the synagogue, he uses the expression, whenever Moses is read, Henika an Argonoskitai Moisis, whenever Moses is read, you always read it out loud. The context of this expression, in other words, is the assembly of worship. Indeed, this is the same verb that Paul employs with reference to his own epistles. He uses it, for example, in 2 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, and in Ephesians 3. He says he wants these letters to be read whenever you get copies made. Read them in the churches. It's true of his very first letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20, 27. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle shall be read, shall be read to all the holy brethren. Now, this is why the books of the New Testament were written. And it's what we still do. We got it gathered this morning. 
we read something from Paul, we read something from Mark. We've always been doing that. When the congregations received these epistles, they read them during the time of worship, along with the readings from the law and the prophets. It was an apostolic practice that the Christian churches have continued ever since. Copies of the epistles were made precisely so that this could be done. Thus Paul wrote in the last chapter to the Colossians. You ready? When this epistle is read, Anagosthene, among you, pardon me, Anagosthene, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read on Anagnosti, also to the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read Agenoti, the epistle from Laodicea, exchanging letters and reading them in congregations. And which proves, proves how far Xerox goes back. This proves it. As far as we can tell, Virtually the entire corpus of the New Testament began as exercises in public reading in church. Not more than 60 years after John wrote Revelation, Justin Martyr described the normal Christian worship on Sundays, chapter 65 and chapter 67 of the First Apology of Justin. It's our, it's our first treatise of here's what, here's what we Christians do on Sunday. This worship begins, he says, with a reading from the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets. The memoirs of the apostles. Memoirs of the apostles. Uh, I was thinking, I don't think it'll ever happen, Scott, but if, if, uh, if I ever have a, a gospel book bound again, the one right now will last at least a thousand years, so we won't have to worry about that. But if I ever, ever had one bound again, that's what I would want on the front cover. Memoirs of the Apostles. <coughs> Memoirs of the Apostles. Yes, sir. Um, so this uh, aspect of Christian worship on uh, Sunday, so this was something before Constantine. Right? Oh, heaven so yes. This has been going on. Oh, heaven yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, long before Constantine. Yeah, long before Constantine. It's certainly first century. New Testament times. Yeah. Justin, by the way, he goes on with a very detailed after after, after the uh, after the reading of the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets. He says the proestominos, the one who's presiding at the Eucharist, he gets up and he speaks as well as he can. <laughs> speaks as well as he can. Back in chapter sixty-five of that same work. Justin spoke of the apostles and the memoirs composed by them, which are called Gospels. The memoirs composed by them, which are called Gospels. Thus, we are certain that the Gospels, the epistles, and the book of Revelation were all read in the church, in, in the church's gatherings of worship from the earliest times, along with the readings of the Law and the Prophets. In the East, we have shifted the Old Testament readings to Vespers. And I don't have any trouble with that at all. Uh, just spread it out a little bit. Uh, so the, the Old Testament readings are supposed to be read at Vespers. Okay. However, 
since Orthodox of our day seem not to be able to be convinced of this, they should be reading the Old Testament at Saturday Vespers, which you're supposed to. <laughs> we just sort of dropped it to, to shorten it, and we, we've cut out a lot of Vespers from, from Saturday nights. The entire Kathisma, uh, eighth, pardon me, the first Kathisma, we've dropped it. Uh, they do a little bit of it in the OCA. They do, uh, they do one or two lines from each of the eight, first eight psalms. Blessed is the man who walketh not of the counsel of the ungodly. And then they shift to Psalm 2. <laughs> and then shift to Psalm 3. And so forth. They, they get through them that way. But in the monasteries, the monasteries, they, they still do that. In the monasteries, they still they do the uh, they do the full the full eight psalms. Um, is that hand up? In the, in the Greek archdiocese, it's on a feast. So like it's in how most of our feasts in the bishop comes they always do that. So it's St. Demetrius. They have, they have the, uh, they the Old Testament readings on the... Yeah, and the full Psalter. There seems to be, I don't know, sort of a, there's a thing in our archdiocese, and I'm not sure where it comes from. If you want to keep the short, uh, you, you've been in archdiocese longer than I have. <laughs> Just sort of want to keep, 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 keep it short down so you take out the Psalms. I don't, that, that's the last thing I'd take out. I would certainly, I would certainly skip a litany before I skip a Psalm, but... Um, it just they sort of want to keep it, you know. Uh, this morning, this morning before, uh, between the 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 the, uh, the litanies at the beginning of the service, you only sing about two verses, I think, or something with a, with a doxology and all. I think that's what you do, right? Between the litanies, the beginning of the liturgy, you're following. You're following what the what the liturgic, liturgical guide says. You're following that. The, in that, that's where you would have big blocks of psalter between those. But of course, you would lengthen the surface quite a bit if you do that. And uh, and one has to be prudent in these matters. I I, I recognize that. It's no secret to any of us that the proclamatory readings of God's word is an essential part of Christian worship. It's not something added on. Even in heaven, it seems, the book is an integral component of the worship. So when you die and you get to heaven, you're still going to see the gospel book being carried in procession. (laughs) What does John say? I saw in the right hand of him who sits upon the throne a scroll, Biblion, written inside and on the back, Sealed with seven seals. This scroll can be opened only by the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who stands in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the four and twenty elders. It can be opened by him only because it has been fulfilled by him. Thus, the congregation chants, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Now this scene in Revelation, where the Lamb comes forward and starts to break the seals and unroll the scroll, this stands parallel to the Gospel of Luke at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and at the end of it. Notice that Jesus begins and ends his public ministry by opening the scriptures and interpreting them. 
He begins his ministry in Luke in the synagogue at Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue at Nazareth. He was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He continued that reading and then ended by saying, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In the second place, Luke returns to this theme in the story of the two disciples who met the risen Christ on the way to Emmaus. Luke tells us that, while he's walking with them, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them, the word that's used there is dia hermenevo. Is the word hermeneutics in there? Dia hermenevo. I gotta be watch careful my Greek here. I got a philosopher in front of me. I do add Greek. I do add I do add a Greek too. <laughs> Anybody who can read Attic Greek is will have no trouble with Koine. Koine is simply street Greek. Or as or as uh, Amos Wilder calls it, Salvation Army Greek. <laughs> He says the New Testament is written in Salvation Army Greek. <laughs> yes, sir. I have to interject here the incidents of uh, Saint um, Jacques of Cyprus, who went uh, with the bishop. Epiphanius. Uh, no, um, the one that has the back out of his head. Go ahead. Um, but during the service, when the bishop read the, the story about carrying the paralytic. And the bishop changed it from the Kratos, which is the point aid, to Skimbos. And he interrupted the service and said, you so much better than he was at Kratos if you're ashamed to use his words. Wow. I wasn't there for that incident. <laughs> In fact, I think it, it may have been me. I don't know. Uh, so so the Luke ends how? After the resurrection. Well, we had the first beginning, the first part of Luke this morning, didn't we, at the Matins? We read, the, read I think, the first 11 verses of, of chapter 24. Jesus walks with them. He opens to them the scriptures. He opens to them the scriptures. And then what do they do? They go to a table. And they sit down. He breaks bread. He takes the bread. He says the, he says the barakah. He breaks the bread, gives it to them. Same four verbs. And they recognize him in the in the in the breaking of bread. So you got the you got the, the word of God, understanding of the word of God, leading to the recognition of Christ in the Eucharist. The biblical exegesis by the slain and risen Jesus is called an opening of the scriptures. The two disciples afterwards reflect, did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, and he opened the scriptures to us. That's what I'm supposed to be doing after the scriptures are read. I'm supposed to get up and open them for you. As Justin Martyr says, as best he can. <laughs> In Luke's very next scene, when Jesus meets with the other disciples, yeah, when Jesus meets with the other disciples, pardon me, Yes, the next scene, the last scene in Luke before, before the ascension. Jesus meets with the other disciples. Luke tells us that Jesus opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So the opening of the mind and the opening of scriptures are the same thing. Now in the book of Revelation, the lamb alone may open the scroll. 
This scroll seems to be more than one thing. It is, first of all, the scriptures themselves considered as prophecy, fulfilled and therefore opened by Christ. It is also the symbol of God's secret counsel given by the action of the redeeming Christ uh, in this world. Now, where does the scroll come from? It comes from the hand of the one who sits upon the throne. You notice the, the one who sits upon the throne doesn't open it. He gives it to the lamb to open it. In other words, a human being must come forward and open the seals of God's own mind. This human being is the sacrificial lamb, which John describes as standing hos es fragmenon, standing as though slain. He bears in his flesh the marks of having died, but now he lives. His having died and risen are qualities that abide in his person as permanent characteristics of his existence and his relationship to the world. It's Christ with his wounds who says, I am he who lives and was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. Now, what then is John describing in all these visions? Because we'll be spending quite a bit of time with these visions. I don't think I can finish the book of Revelation before next summer. I don't think I can. John is describing in a highly poetic form what it takes for Christians to worship or what takes place when Christians worship. When they come to worship, Christians do not escape the painful history of the world. It's not escape from this world into heaven. It's not that. On the contrary, they go to the very source of history, the eternal throne of God. Surrounded by the seeming chaos of the world and the events of men, threatened by social and political forces dominated from the direction of hell, Christians are strengthened by God's, pardon me, John's vision of their worship being assumed into the very worship that takes place before God's throne. Now, John's many images of cosmic destruction do not eclipse, nor should they detract from his earlier attention to the source of all order, which is the throne of God. I told you last week, wasn't it? that the throne is mentioned more than 40 times in the Gospel of John, uh, pardon me, in the Revelation of John, more than 40 times. The next highest is the Gospel of Matthew, five times. Um, Now, around this throne, constant worship takes place in heaven. In the blood of Jesus, Christians take part in the worship of the heavenly sanctuary, the image that dominates both the book of Revelation and the epistle to the Hebrews. These two New Testament books are best described as exhortations to repentance. That's the purpose of both Revelation and Hebrews, exhortations to repentance. Okay. Okay. 
The epistle of the Hebrews says, with respect to this throne, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Now John's visions bring the Asian readers, the Asian believers, to that single and lasting reality that remains but all else has disappeared. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. And what is it that gives Christians access to the divine throne? The blood. The blood. The sacrificial blood of Christ. This motif is sounded in both Hebrews and Revelation. In Hebrews we are told, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the true and living God? When we come to the heavenly sanctuary, the epistle of Hebrews says this, But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come, for the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, nor with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption for us. This is the Jesus of whom the author of Hebrews says, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Therefore, brethren, the author goes on, having boldness to enter the holy place, the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, and gizelmen, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the homologia, let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling together of ourselves, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Engizusin, Engizusan Tihimera. In order to come to Mount Zion then, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, we must first come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. So the God we come to in our worship is described as the God of peace, who brought again from the, from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now these are the themes we find in the book of Revelation, which speaks of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, 
who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. The theme is common in both these epistles, both these works. He is worthy to open the seals of the scroll of history, we tell him, because you were slain and you redeemed us to God by your blood. Those who passed through the great tribulation are those who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits upon the throne will dwell among them. And these are the believers who are said to overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Now I think we are ready for chapter 1, verse 1. But I didn't bring any notes on that. So we'll do that uh, next week. Glory to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Now endeavor the God who is, who was, and is to come at the end of time.